morning, everyone. It's good to be here with you. I probably don't really even need a mic. You guys know I can yell. Turn to that one. <laughs> uh, it's good to be with you here this morning. I praise the Lord. Had a great time of uh, fellowship. Lord's Supper this morning. And uh, is this a new mic? I don't remember seeing this one before. There, is that better? If you uh, open your Bibles with me to uh, Genesis, and we're going to be uh, considering a, uh, f- a familiar passage, and I guess from even from Sunday school, it's one of those uh, passages that children are, uh, are uh, taught. The Tower of Babel, and uh, it's been a, a really a great joy for me. It's been very intriguing in the study of this because, um, <clears throat> you know, I know the story, and I've looked at some of the, uh, you know, peripheral things around the story, but digging into it this time, it seemed to have, it was a little more refreshing, I think, to me than it has been in the past. And it may be because I'm a little older than I used to be. And uh, it may be just the Lord knew the right time to teach me the right things, right? I asked Jamel to maybe let the high school kids stay out here this morning because I really found this to be a relevant illustration for our contemporary world. And the scripture is amazing like that, isn't it? How relevant it can be. Um, I've kind of, there's a kind of a theme that I'm hoping to communicate through this, and that's the theme is that we need limits in our lives. We need limits in our lives. You know, with technology and with the way things are, uh, with our environments and uh, the power and just uh, how fast things turn over. I think about even your telephone uh, your phones your smartphones i have a computer that's probably about six or eight years old and i know it's probably three generations past where it needs to be right and so so technology has really kind of grown significantly and it it just uh i thought this particular passage we're going to learn a little bit about the effects of technology we're looking at genesis chapter 10 and 11 it's a lot to cover but we're not gonna. We're gonna divide it up. Really, we're gonna divide it up, and then I hope to go back real quick because it's been a while since we've been in this book, hasn't it? So we're gonna retrace some of this that we've talked about. But in Genesis chapter 10 and 11, it's a very simple format, very simple outline. Naturally, Genesis chapter 10 gives the genealogies and the. Um, I'm trying to think of the word, the genealogies and the land or the disbursement of humanity. Okay, the designation of nations is really begins to develop right here in Genesis chapter 10. We're not going to look a whole lot. We're not going to do that. There's a lot of names in there that I can't pronounce. Not interested in embarrassing myself a whole lot. But uh, you can study that for yourselves. And we will look at it briefly and see its application in our uh, current study. But when we get to Genesis chapter 11, we're going to key in on the nine verses, Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. And then, of course, from uh, Genesis 10 
through um, Genesis or Genesis 11 verses 10 through 32, we see a, a direction that God takes. And I think the one brother called these, I think the Hebrew word is tolaf. These are tolafs. These are beginnings of stories or beginnings of times and beginnings of, of, of history or, as it were, um, administrations. In this particular section, we, we are in, a, in the, what's called the third administration of God's working or the third dispensation, as it were. We know that when God created Adam and Eve, when he created the earth and the heavens and Adam and Eve and placed them in the garden, it was the administration of innocence, many call it. And, um, on, and then, of course, Adam and Eve would disobey God and God would send them out. And um, that was a, a, the next administration or dispensation. Uh, and that's the ad administration of conscience of conscience. And we're going to enter into a new administration, and this administration really has to deal with civil government. And even though, I, I mean, I personally didn't do the, the uh, arduous study of, of tracking the time, um, I'm trusting some of the other theologians that have uh, uh, put this period of time to be about, 400 and, about 412 years is what the period of time is. And this period of time involves from the end of the flood, from the receding of the water, and it goes all the way up through verse 32 of chapter 11, where we're introduced to uh, the, the great man Abraham. And it's interesting that in this particular chapter, we should, be, uh, we should approach that wonderful New work that God is going to do. So we have, we have 412 years to cover. Are you guys ready? Okay, and we're not going to talk about all of it. There's some principles that I would like us to maybe just, I'm just going to throw them out. Okay, the underlying theme of hopefully of this study, which I'm going to go pretty rapidly, is, is that we need limits in our lives. But I want you to understand this, that there's a principle that governs our lives. And especially for you young people, you, this is good for us to maybe grasp. The first principle is, is that what we worship defines who we are. Okay, what you worship defines who you are. The second principle is, is that your worship shapes your world view. It shapes the way you think and how you, how you, how you uh, uh, put things together. Whether, whether you, whether you uh, think about some of the contemporary issues, such as abortion or infanticide or you know, some of the other issues, drinking, drugs, and some of the contemporary issues. Uh, worship shapes your worldview. And by the way, your worldview governs your ways. How you think about things will govern and determine the ways that you go and how you manage and the things you participate in. Why don't we, before we go, because uh, I want to go rapidly, maybe we'll go to the Lord and ask for his leading here this morning. Father, we thank you so much for the privilege we have of considering your word, which is eternal. And as we see it here, these 
history of so long ago is even very relevant to us today. I pray that as we study it, we'll glean out the factors that will establish our ways, that it will help our worldview, and our worship would be sure. In Jesus' name, I pray. So this administration, about 412 years, we're going to look. It goes from the, it, it, it's initiated by the civil government. We're going to backtrack a little bit, and we're going to go to Genesis chapter 9. And I'd just like to read maybe the first seven verses of Genesis chapter 9. Now remember, this is after the flood. A lot of things have changed. We're on this side of the flood. Prior to the flood, uh, the world operated in a, in a distinctly different way. And there's going to be a whole lot of changes going on. And in the, in the onset of these changes, uh, the God, uh, God institutes the very, the very importance of civil government. Civil government is important. And it, and it reveals to us our, much of our own character and the things that we need to understand. But let's read Genesis chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. So God blessed Noah and his sons, and he said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and the fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast on the earth, on every bird of the air, on all that move on the earth, and on all the fish of the sea, they are given into your hand. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. I have given you all things, even as the green herbs. Now, something new is instituted here, right? Prior to this, on the other side of the flood, uh, obviously men were vegetarians, as it were. They did not eat meat, as is introduced to us here. So this is a new thing that God is doing. In verse 4, he says, But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Surely, for your lifeblood, I will demand a reckoning. From the hand of every beast I will require it, and from the hand of man, from the hand of every man's brother, I will require the life of a man. Now he says here in verse 4, but you shall not eat flesh with its life. Now why with its life? Where he says that is its blood. All right. And why would he institute something like this? You cannot eat something, you know, with its blood. What do you think? Is there some uh, precedent here that he's trying to set? Is there something important about that? Well, I think we all are familiar with it, that the blood represents life, right? It represents life. It's a sacred thing. In Leviticus chapter uh, 17, we'll later on deal with that, uh, that the blood is sanctified. And the idea behind this is, is that we should not take holy things and have them for everyday use. All right? And so they're to be separate. Now, we're given permission here to kill animals, as it were, for food. Okay? But look at what the next thing is, is even though we're given permission to kill animals, we are at the same time, and this is a new thing, we are at the same time prohibited to murder. Look at verse 6. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be, set, shall be shed. Why? For in the image of God he made man. All right? For the first time, man ta mankind is given the responsibility to punish. Now let me ask you a question. 
Prior to this time, has there ever been a murder on the face of the earth prior to this? Was there ever a murder? Yes, we know there was, and particularly we think of Cain and Abel. Okay? Um, but who took responsibility on issuing the punishment for there? Did God say, well, he uh, murdered someone, so now he has to enter into capital punishment? No. Who took the responsibility? God solely had the responsibility. And Cain would recognize the dread of the penalty of his sin. And he would go before God and plead with God and God would give him a mark. Right? So God dealt with punishing that sin up to this time. Another new thing is instituted here. And that is, for the first time, mankind has a responsibility to uh, punish. Mankind has the authority to regulate mankind. Okay. Now there's some other things that we find here in this in verse 7. It says, And as for you, be fruitful and multiply, bring forth abundantly in the earth, and multiply in it. Now have we heard that before? He just said it in verse 1. Right? And then if you go ahead um, and go back to, to um, chapter 8, verse 17, then God would say, uh, it says, bring out, bring out, when he took him out of the ark, he says, bring out with you every living thing of all the flesh that is with you, birds and cattle, every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, so that they may abound on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So this is instituted three times in this short period of time. God is telling them to populate the earth. Three times, in chapter 8, verse 17, in chapter 9, verse 1, and then again here in chapter 9 and verse 7. So obviously, three times indicates that this is an important matter. That God would have them to populate the earth, to be fruitful, to scatter across the earth, and to, and to, and to multiply. So we see... A few new things here, but something old comes back up, doesn't it? The same old thing comes back up, and that is mankind fails. He failed in the garden. He failed in the days of Noah. And we're going to see in chapter 10 that mankind fails again. Let's go over to chapter 11, and we'll get to the course right now. Genesis chapter 11. When we look at, at uh, Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 4, it deals with what the humans are doing. Verses 1 through 4. What are the humans doing? And then in verses 5 through 9, deals with what God does in response. Now, when we look at the structure of this, it's encapsulated between two verses. Verse 1 and verse 9. In verse 1 it says the, the whole earth had a common language and a common vocabulary. Um, I used the new uh, English translation for that. But in uh, New King James it says the whole earth had one language and one speech. And the structure would conclude in verse 9. Therefore, uh, its name is called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the earth. Now let's look at it uh, kind of one verse at a time and try to glean from this. Let's go back up to the top in verse 2. 
Genesis 11, verse 2, it says, And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. Now, the idea here is that they were traveling in a direction. They journey, and I like this translation. I think the, the, the uh, old King James doesn't say they were, it doesn't indicate that they were uh, traveling from the east. It says they were going eastward, and I don't know why it would say that. Because the better translation is that they were traveling away from the east. And there's something to understand in this. There's, a, there's, there's something that God is leading us to. You know, in the scriptures, when we study the scriptures, uh, there's uh, God in, associates himself with a certain direction. Many times he uh, associates himself with the direction of the east. For instance, uh, we know later that the Lord Jesus will come by way of the east. Okay, when he comes unto the temple. Okay, and we also know that uh, uh, in the, when the tabernacle was set up, that the door was to always be facing the rising of the sun. So that would be the east. So when we look at this scripture, we see that we're being communicated that these people are traveling in which direction? Away from God. They are traveling away from God. Symbol symbolically, they're traveling in the opposite direction of God. So there's, there's some, some uh, anticipation, I think, when we understand that here. Now let's look at verse 3. Then they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. And it says they had brick for stone and they had asphalt for mortar. You know, this is our first introduction to this thing called technology. I wanted to bring my cell phone up here, but I think I left it in the truck. Don't anyone break into my truck. Technology. Okay, prior to this time, when they would build an altar or they would build uh, some kind of a building, they didn't create and form bricks. They just used stones. And I think there's a good illustration here. Who is it that makes stones? Who's the creator of stones? It's God. That when they would build something, you would use the genuine material. Here they're using another material, a fabricated material, a lesser of a material to some extent. Technology is used to fabricate this stone. And here where we see they begin to develop their worldview. Here they would make bricks of their own. The idea is, is now they would begin to, which was mentioned this morning, which was, I, I just praise the Lord for it this morning, they would begin to decide how they would approach God. This is the beginning steps of deciding how we're going to approach God. Here they would, if we build stones, and we build them this way, and we stack them up this way, then we can have access to God on our own terms. And this is the beginning of a world view that they begin to develop. You know, I think of my own life and before I came to Christ, and then even not long after, and I may have mentioned it up here before, I was very, I was very proud of the fact that I was a self-made man. You know, I grew up in a, in a broken home, and by 9 or 10, I was pretty much fitting for myself. And I was pretty successful. I worked, I lived, by the time I was 15, I had, a, I had an apartment on the beach. I was paying big bucks for it. I was a self-made man. 
And this is the idea here. They were beginning to, to stretch their limits. They were beginning, and that's what technology has a tendency to do. It helps you to establish, or it establishes your world view. Let's look at verse 4. And they, they, they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, let us be scat- lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. Now the idea here is, is it's not a jack in the beanstalk kind of a thing. You know, they weren't looking for this thing to go way up in the skies and find some kingdom. No, they wanted to build a platform that they could approach God in the way that they wanted to. Okay, let's look at this one uh, 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 element in here. It says, come, let us build ourselves a city, a tower whose top is in the heavens, so we can reach God. We can get to him the way we want to. Right. And let us make a name for ourselves. Now, this is very interesting. I want to take a minute. And what is what is it? What does this illustrate to us? Let us make a name for ourselves. Well, if you go back into Genesis chapter one. In Genesis chapter 1, you can see the idea of naming things and having a name for yourself, okay? Um, it says uh, in, verse, uh, in, in verse 3, it says, Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good, and it divided the light from And God said, Let the light... Um, uh, God called the light day, and the darkness He called night. So God would name the night and he would name the day. Then God said, let there be the firmament and the waters and divide the waters. And God made the firmament and the waters and there the firmament was from the waters. And God called the firmament heaven. He named it heaven. And then God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered and on and on. And then God called the dry land earth. The idea here is, is that God is naming. And then later on, we're going to see in Genesis chapter 2, that God would bring Adam, would, would bring all of his creation to Adam, and he would have him name the creation. So the idea here is when they said, let's make a name for ourselves, they are saying the idea is the idea of dominion. We want to have dominion. No longer is God going to have a domain. But we are going to have dominion over ourselves. They would use their technology to establish their world view. They were in control of themselves. And you know how technology has a tendency of doing that. It's amazing how much information you can get on the internet. It's amazing on how powerful things are uh, on this earth. You think about a washing machine. Have you ever had to wash your clothes by hand? Some of you here may have done that before. It's an arduous work. It's a big job, time-consuming job. Today, what do you do? You put it in a machine, you throw some soap in there, you push a button. And amazingly, it cleans the clothes. And I don't know how it does it, but it ends up getting dried and folded and it ends up in my drawers. It's an amazing thing. A washing machine. You know, and you think about technology. What about the copy machine? I remember when I was in the Marine Corps, and I first went, this was back in the 70s. Copy machines were not even around in the 70s like they are now. 
If you wanted something, you had to stick these carbon papers in between. And you had to get three sets of carbon papers and do it four times. Let's see Judy grinning over there. She knows what I'm talking about. She's in the educational system. Today, what do you do? You go to word proof, proof and you put it in and it changes everything. Right? So technology has some great, great advantages. Medical science, we've seen Brother Gray seven times, he told me, about four times today. Seven times he was in intensive care. And he said, I came out of it. Medical science, technology, it's a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful thing. And when technology is in the hands of the right people, like, it's like a knife. In the hands of a surgeon, it can do a wonderful thing. But in the hands of an evil man, what happens? Right? It's like, it's, like, it's like the print. It's like print. You know, we have the Bible because of the technology of print. But there's also pornography. Right? So technology has a wonderful thing, but there is danger in it. And the danger is, is that technology gives us a sense of well-being. It gives us a sense of mastering the universe. And it's so embedded in our minds. You know, you go on a cruise and you pay $1,000 and something happens. And a wave tossles your ship. And that's the only thing you think about. Is, oh, I went on this cruise and I had this problem. Right? As if you paying $1,000 can make the Atlantic Ocean behave like you want it to. Doesn't happen like that. Right? It makes us think like that. When our limits are expanded and expanded and expanded, we no longer need God. That's the danger of technology. And I think in this case, in Genesis chapter 11, it resulted in a sense that they have a godlike character. They have a godlike character that they are in control, that they sit on the throne and they know longer need God. Let's move on a little bit. Verses 5, I'm going to read verses 5 through 9. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, Indeed, the people are one, and they have all one language. And this is what they begin to do. Now nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. It's interesting that God would acknowledge this. That they, they had the ability to do. That it's a wonderful thing. It really is a wonderful thing. They would, they would, they would have the ability to, to empower themselves. They would go on and on. Their limits would be expanded more and more. And it says in uh, verse 8, or verse 7, he says, Come, let us go down there and confuse their language that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad and from there over the face of all the earth and they ceased to building the city. And uh, we understand here that in verse 6 it says, Is if as one people, all sharing one common language, they began to do this. They would develop an attitude that there were no limits. Is there that potential in today? Especially in the youth? And I think of that. When you're young, you feel like you're invincible in a lot of ways. There's The world is at your hands. Like these people here, they would develop an attitude that there were no limits. There would be an unbridled ambition. 
and it would get away from them. We need limits. And when God said, let us come down, he was being gracious. <laughs> I can assure you, he was being gracious to them. In verse 7, it says, let us come down and confuse their language so they won't be able to understand each other. And in a sense, this is uh, the judgment of God. But in another sense, in the same idea, God begins to impose limits upon them. The very grace of a loving God. Look with me. We looked at it a little bit this morning. Go over to, um, real quick, to Acts chapter 17. And we looked at this a little bit this morning. <clears throat> Acts chapter 17, and we're going to go down to um, verse 26. And the Apostle Paul is in Greece. And by the way, you think of Athens. Athens is the wisdom of the world. You know, they had all... And he, he gets to this place here where they have all these altars. In verse 26, it says, uh, And he has made from one blood... We're all descended from one blood. You know, <laughs> I was talking to someone about this the other day, and I was talking about, you know... It was 412 years. And you know what he said to me? He says, well, what about the Ice Age? The Ice Age, I said. Well, I'll tell you what. Sometimes science and the Bible may not agree, right? But if you just give it a little bit of time, science will eventually catch up. <laughs> okay. What about the Ice Age, right? You know, when we come here, we understand the mind and the will of God. He says here, And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth. And he's determined, look at this, and he's determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. In other words, he's determined our times. Later on in... Um, in, uh, in, um, in Psalms chapter 90, you know, in Psalms chapter 90, Moses would write, the days of our lives add up to 70. And if by strength, we get 80. Right? God's determined our times here on earth. He has set limits for us. And he goes on to say, and this is an interesting idea here as well. Not only has he predetermined our times, but our boundaries and our dwellings. We're going to talk real briefly here, I hope in Genesis chapter 10, that there were boundary, boundaries and dwellings that were established way back then. Does that mean that God has determined that, that we should be here right now, that Tim should be sitting there right now listening to this message? His dwell? I don't know. I guess it does mean that a little bit. But I think it's greater than that. It's greater than that. It's the fact that God sets limits in our lives. He determines limits of time and He determines limits of circumstances. Why? Look what verse 27 says in Acts chapter 17. So that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for Him and as a blind, like a blind man, that they might grope and find Him though He is not 
far from each one of us. And this idea that though he is not far from each one of us, it's not a matter of, it's not a, it's not a, a matter of distance. It's not a matter of distance. Though it's not that complicated is another way we can say it. He's not that far from us. It's not that complicated. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And then Jesus would dwell with us. It's not that complicated. And again, I think of my own testimony. And I think of how, you know, I was proud to be a self-made man. But I'm humbled by that today. I'm humbled by the fact that God set limits in my life. And one day I laid in an efficiency apartment and asked God, if you're really there, please show me. And he was so gracious to first show me my limits and then to allow myself to be a part of his great kingdom work. So we see that God set limits in the lives of these people because he's a gracious God. In Genesis chapter 10, there's a parallel of Genesis chapter 10 with uh, another situation that we talked about on Wednesday. And that was uh, in Acts chapter 8, 9, and 10. And we want to look at that real quick. In Genesis chapter 10, we see that God gathers the people by using our limitations of time and circumstances. Genesis chapter 10 is divided up into three families. And you remember the names of Noah's sons. They were what? Ham, Shem, and Japheth, right? Well, Japheth in verse 5 is one of the sons. And the idea of Japheth in verse 5, in Genesis chapter 10, verse 5, it says, From from these the coastland peoples of the Gentiles were separated into their lands. Japheth is those of perhaps the area of Germany and Russia. And even, uh, some people don't like it for me to say it, as I did a little bit of research, I talked to a guy today, even the Native Americans are of this very line of uh, the Gentiles, the line of Jepheth. And then in verse 6, we see uh, the sons of Ham were Cush, and there's a list there of the nations of the sons of Ham. And by the way, you know the situation with Ham and his, and his uh, son Gomer? It was interesting for me to, to find this out. Is that, you know, when, when Noah woke up and he found out what, what Ham and Gomer had done and it went into him. And, of course, we're not going to talk about all of that, the extent of all that. But it ended up that Noah would curse not Ham, right? But he would curse his son Gomer. Why? Because Ham was already part of the kingdom. He was already part of the kingdom work. And as a result of it, all the heritage of Gomer would be the one that would receive uh, the consequences. Well, Ham in verse 6, when you look at the studies, we don't have time to do it. These are the people that dwelt around Ethiopia, Egypt, Libya, and in Canaan, which later the Israelites would go in and conquer. And these are particularly the darker race people, the Africans. Okay, and then if we go down to verse twenty, down to verse twenty-one, uh, and children were born also to Shem. And Shem, when you look at the the the, uh, the dwellings that they were limited to, it was particularly the Middle East. You had the Middle East. You had they were they were the Arabs, uh, Iraq, Syria, and that area of the world. 
And it's not really that far for us to conceive how that really came about, is it? Well, let's look at something very interesting as we go to Acts chapter 8. We see, well, first of all, we see in, in 11, in Acts chapter 11, verse, verse 9, therefore, its name is called Babel, or in verse 8, it says, so the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of all the earth, and they ceased building. Therefore, its name is called Babel, because the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there, the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the earth. We see that the problem of Babel was a scattering, resulted in the scattering, right? And there are some that will say civil government, you know, we're en- entering into a one world government. I, I think everybody realizes that. A one world government. And there will be peace on this earth. That's the answer for humanity. A one world government. Well, it didn't work in Babel, and I can pretty much assure you it's not going to work here. The answer to the problem of Babel is not a civil one-world government. In Acts chapter 8, we're not going to read a whole lot about it, but in Acts chapter 8, there was a conversion. Who knows who got converted in Acts chapter 8? It was who? Who was it? It was the Ethiopian. Okay, so we see one of the first conversions in the, in the book of Acts was the Ethiopians. From the line of who? Ham. Right? The Ethiopians. In Acts chapter 9, there was another conversion. What was that conversion in Acts chapter 9? It was Saul. Saul from the Jewish line. Okay? From Shem. So there was a conversion there as well. And then in Acts chapter 10, there was another conversion. And who was that? Cornelius. Cornelius was of the the line of Jephthah. So the Gentiles. So I contend to you that the, 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 the resolution to the problem of Babel is not a one-world government. It's not a one-world government that we're looking at. The gospel of Christ is the solution to the problem of Babel, not a centralized government. And when Christ reigns in the individual heart, the kingdom of God will be restored. In John chapter 5, verse 24, the Lord Jesus would say, I tell you the solemn truth. The one who hears my message and believes the one who has sent me has eternal life will not be condemned, but is crossed over from death unto life. I'm going to conclude with this couple of statements. We need limits. We need limits in our lives so that we might grope around and find God, even though he's not that far. We need limits. Here at this new administration, we learn a few basic lessons. You know, by the way, this is a a story in a well-crafted book. Moses wrote this book, and when he was reading it, and when he was putting it together, he was telling it to the Jewish people who were perhaps on the other side of the Jordan. Oh, no, they weren't on the other side of the Jordan. Not yet, but he was putting it together before. Well, they were still in the wilderness, Right? And they were very familiar with these. They didn't need to be convinced that there was a God because they saw Him. They saw Him in their deliverance from Egypt. They saw Him in their deliverance through the Red Sea. They saw Him in the provision of food and quail and water. They didn't need to be convinced. They didn't need some big ontological study about who God is any more than I need to get up in the morning and you explain to me that Linda is my wife. 
Right? Oh, yeah, well, she's your wife. You got married and tell me all these things. Right? No. I just reach over and give her a kiss and say good morning. Why? Because I've experienced the woman. And the same is with these people in their relationship with God. They didn't need to be convinced of them. They experienced God in their daily lives. And here we see that God creates humans turn away from God. God recreates after the flood and humans turn away from God again. And ultimately what we find out is this. It's not about putting us in a new location. It's not about new circumstances because they had all of those, didn't they? And it's not even about getting a new leaf on life, a new lease on life or turning over a new leaf. What we find here is that our relationship with God, it's about us individually becoming a new creation. We are to become a new creation. We let God make changes in us through the Spirit, through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, God doesn't give up quickly. He's been working for a very, very long time. <laughs> and He's not going to quit working until He's finished with us. Until He's finished with us. He doesn't give up, but ultimately He does judge. So we're going to ask ourselves a question. What does it take to make me aware of the need to know God and to recognize those limits that He puts, those limits He has made to bring me to Him? Let's pray. Father, we thank You. We've been here a while this morning, and we thank you for your patience with us. We pray that your word and the illustration found in your preserved history would have a real impact in our lives. I praise you, Father, for those limits that you've made. We think of the world and how it uses the terms no limits, no fear. Just do it. This morning, Father, may we say, thank you for the limits that you put in our lives. We can't do it of ourselves. And we thank you for the Lord Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen.